Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. China and India share a 4,000 kilometre long border, and it's been a relationship that has had its tense moments. This situation is made all the more complicated by the Brahmaputra River. Rivers recognise no borders and its resources are always in high demand. Here to discuss who gets to take a drink is Dr. Ruth Gamble, David Myers Research Fellow at La Trobe University and resident water spirit. Thank you for joining me, Ruth. (laughs) Good to be here. So if you could break down the Brahmaputra River for me, uh, where does it flow? Who does it affect? What's your general starting off blurb? Blurb. So so the... Brahmaputra River, or the river that's known internationally as the Brahmaputra River. Mm. Well, yeah, we'll it's got a lot that. of different yeah. names. Yeah. The longest part of it starts in the uh, southwest of the Tibetan Plateau, mm-hmm. um, so uh, right in the southwestern corner of the People's Republic of China. And then it goes all the way along what counts as the Tibetan Plateau and then makes a really dramatic turn and descends through the world's deepest canyon or gorge into the northern plains of Assam uh, in in India. Mm-hmm. And then it uh, spreads out across Assam and then joins with the into the delta of the Ganga and the Brahmaputra blend together and creates most of Bangladesh. Yeah, okay. So you've got three countries that have access to this water supply. That's just the main channel. Yeah. Um, <laughs> then you've also got uh, flow into the river because that's just one channel so coming through. So different tributaries. Tributaries yep. coming on different sides that are all uh, complicated elements of the basin. Mm-hmm. They come from Bhutan as well. Not quite Nepal. The border between Nepal and Sikkim is kind of the border between the Ganges and the Brahmaputra's watersheds and also parts of Burma. Mm-hmm. So a lot of different countries have access to this water, yeah. can rely on it, do rely on it. Need it, yeah. And international water politics kind of says, look, we all need to use this water as a natural resource. Let's play nicely. I can see your face kind of going, yeah. 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 <laughs> Ideal world, Matt. Ideal world. Ideal world, yeah. <laughs> so how does this play out with this river? It's really complicated because uh, it depends on uh, so many other elements, right? Mm. So the borderlands that it runs through, the Brahmaputra runs through between the People's Republic of China and uh, India is actually a disputed border. Mm-hmm. There's a whole region there that both sides claim. Is that because of the river? No. Okay. It's, it's because of complicated colonialist histories that, you know, can, like everything, we can probably blame the British and then the Chinese and the mm-hmm. Indians took over after them. Um, so it flows through that region. And then uh, the idea of the border, the line of control that occurs between China and India is that it skims along the mountain tops. Um, between the river's bend. So the river goes along, does this epic bend and then comes back the other way. And then in between those two parts of the river is a big mountain range. Yeah. And the border goes along the top. So you get all of these tributaries flowing either way, either side, and and it's like just a big complicated mess. China can't actually make a deal on the river with India because both of them claim big sections of the water flow themselves and won't agree on what it is. And they have like minor agreements between the two for things like if there's a major flood in China, they're supposed to tell India that there's a flood coming. Uh, But then after the Doklam incident where uh, India and China uh, had a big standoff, then they stopped providing uh, water data Mm -hmm. or flow data to India. Yeah, but that, that, that was a measuring station upgrade though. 
right that they had to do it. There's lots of measuring station (laughs) upgrades. There's lots of natural disasters that seem to happen right next to the border of uh, India on the Tibetan Plateau. Yeah. Um, There's lots of them. Yeah. Yeah. There was a silting as well around uh, late 2017. Yeah. And it is really hard to tell. It's just that there's no, that that area is really closed off. There's not a lot of information. Mm. Uh, It could be a silting because this is also the other thing about this uh, river that makes it so interesting. It's one of the most seismically active parts of the world. But but at the same time, it could be caused by mining activities. Could be mining activity, could be new dams. Mm. Um, Both sides are are building a lot of dams in the Brahmaputra Basin. Mm. Could have been an earthquake, could have been a a glacier lake outburst flood because there's intense climate change. It's got everything. And at the same time, you've got rumours of China being eager to divert this water by building the world's longest tunnel. Yeah, so there's this. There's been a few papers that have published in uh, in the Chinese kind of semi-academic press, like the uh, discursive press, for want of a better word, and they were saying that you know any water that leaves China is a waste. Okay. Right? Yeah. So if we need water in the north of China, they've already got a large project underway that diverts water from the south, which is really quite wet in China, to the north. Mm-hmm. And there was this idea that you could redirect. Uh, the uh, Brahmaputra in Tibet, it's called the Yalongsangpo, redirect that part and have it flowing into the Yangtze and therefore into this channel that will take it to North China, which is really struggling with a water crisis. Yeah. Why don't India and China have a water treaty? Is it just in the too hard basket? Well, they need to have a land treaty before they have a water treaty. Yeah. <laughs> you can't have a water treaty to agree on who gets what water if you don't agree where the border is. But you can agree on broad strokes as in, you know... I mean, there are some things like there was talk about flow and uh, China has done things to appease India. Most of the dams that it's building on the Brahmaputra in, in its section are run-of-the-river dams, uh, which means they don't have a large reservoir. Yeah. Um, so this is supposed to not interrupt the flow down into the Assamese and Bangladeshi plains. It's too complicated to sort out who gets what water uh, if you don't know where the border is. The lack of a treaty uh, leaves the river open up to different uses that you wouldn't have if you were being nice to the people downstream. Can I say that? So India is doing quite a lot of dams or they've planned or announced quite a lot of dams. China's doing a lot of mining. Can you tell me about... And dams. And dams. Can you tell me about the use and overuse maybe of the river? So, yeah, it's complicated because... It's kind of like they're both the states are uh, conducting a massive experiment on the headwaters of a river that feeds 600 million people mm. and no one knows what's going to happen. There's all of these different ways that they've changed the river. And then on top of that, there's things, you know, I mean, climate change is affecting the river. Climate change in the region is twice global averages. Uh, so we're starting from that basis. Uh, and then on top of that, you've got these two developing countries. So they need to provide electricity and clean water to growing populations, and they need to do it. And some of the things that they're trying to do is they have to try and use this resource that they're both trying to compete for to get power and to get water and to use it for development, right? Because that's what their people want. But what you're having happening then is that you're not just the dams themselves, and there's dams being built uh, on both sides of the border, but then you have the roads into the dams. And then because of the disputed border, you have a lot of soldiers in the region as well, and they need roads and they need electricity. Mm -hmm. And if they don't have electricity from dams, they usually use it from diesel generators. And the diesel generators create more pollution that then changes the atmosphere and increases climate change in that region. So they're in a bad position. Anything they do is going to be complicated, is going to have repercussions that you can't think of. Mm. 
Are you worried about the river's health? Yeah, I'm actually more worried about the entire region. Mm. It's changing so fast and it really is an experiment that we don't know the outcome of. And I remember reading this thing in the in the age. There was this big complaint about a couple of hundred trees that had been chopped down at the headwaters of Melbourne's water supply. A couple of hundred trees. I mean, what's happening in the Himalaya is insane compared to that. Yeah. You know, it's just... And then there's all these complicated things like this is a region that has already been through wars and the Cultural Revolution and all of these things. So there's attempts to rehabilitate the environment that are then having consequences that we don't understand. So, for example, reforestation is in, is changing the, the precipitation level. So it's starting to rain more in some parts and that leads to floods and outburst floods that people can't get away from. So you're just seeing this really fast change mm. in a really delicate region that's really important to literally billions of people, right? I mean, the Brahmaputra is only one river, but there's eight rivers that come from that plateau and they provide water and soil for agriculture and for drinking and for manufacturing to the entire uh, monsoonal Asia, everywhere mm. from Pakistan to northern China, right? So we're seeing this region change really fast. The consequences of what that means for the people downstream, what that means for the region, I don't know. It's like an experiment and no one seems to know what the outcome is going to be. So what part does this play into wider politics then between, I suppose, China and India, Mm. but also for the the whole region? And water politics don't just play out between these two countries. China also shares water with Thailand, for example, and Vietnam. Mm. Do they have different attitudes to them because they've got a better relationship with them? In some ways, yeah. yeah there's a, a, a greater Mekong River Authority that Australian government has actually been involved with. It's easier to manage in some ways because th- there isn't as many border disputes and the Chinese uh, take into account more of the riparian or the downstream people than they probably do with India. Mm. Um, but in other ways, it's like it, it makes sense for China to go, we need to feed our people. We need to provide water for our people. Uh, we're developing fast. And so you can see in in some ways where they're, they're maximizing their strategic uh, situation mm. as well. Mm. So it's interesting to me because if I look at the history of it as well, I came across these manuscripts that are left in the desert by the Tibetans when they invaded the Chinese capital in the 6th to 9th century. And there's one of them that's called the Tibetan Chronicle and it has this poem, this evocation of Tibet, mm. and it calls itself the head of all rivers. It's ah, like Tibet, yes. a land encircled by snow mountains, the head of all rivers. So there's this consciousness that this region was where all the rivers came from mm. way back, you know, as part of the kind of Tibetan DNA. And there was all of these stories within the traditional Tibetan culture about not polluting rivers. Because there's this idea that, that when you say water spirits, I was like, ah, oh, I'm a chulu. Um, because they have this idea of the lus uh, or the like nagas or spirits that live in the water. And if you mess with the water, then you are polluting the, the nagas homeland and they'll come and get you. Yeah. Right? So there was this all of these traditions that accidentally, in a way, kept the waters pure for all of this time. And then also the area is so remote, it was really hard to control it, to change uh, the flow of the waters, to, to manage anything. I mean, there's been plans to do this for decades, but no one could actually do it. But and now they can? Yeah. But it's only in the past really 30 years mm. that you've had basic technology to change this environment, to occupy this environment, to be there. Mm. Right? I mean, people have been claiming the region for years, but they haven't been there. The people that live there have special DNA and everything that enables them to live at altitude, but most people can't live there. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's a really hard place to access. And it's kind of protected these headwaters. And that's enabled all of the civilizations and the mass of you know, humans to live in the river valley 
valleys below. But then now it's like, oh, we can get up there and no one seems to be kind of going, wait a minute, what happens? You know, what's the consequences of messing with these watersheds? Mm, mm. You know, the people in Melbourne are worried about 100 trees. What happens when you dam every river in the Himalayas? And, and, um, and we're going to find out? It seems like it, yeah. So between China and India, yeah. the problems of one river, mm. no matter how mighty it is, mm. are quite small when there's everything else to consider between the two countries, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, China and India have a lot in common as well. So they have this weird kind of ambiguous relationship. So the problems with the Brahmaputra River are are related to the problems of the border and Mm -hmm. who owns what. And maybe Tibet disputes and... Yeah, the Tibet things... Dalai uh, Lama, where he's currently is. is. I mean, that plays into the China and India problems as well. Um, But that's kind of related too. Like uh, when the Dalai Lama escaped, he escaped through the Brahmaputra watershed. (laughs) And there's a lot of Tibetans, refugees living in that area Mm. as well. There's a long history of territorial disputes. Uh, There's a real different ethnic groups living in these areas as well. So uh, you get this uh, disjunction between what's happening on the ground and then geopolitics. So when people talk about geopolitics, they tend to have this idea of China and India as being singular entities. Mm -hmm. What you see in these borderlands is like a patchwork of all different groups and uh, ethnic groups, languages, biological regions as well, that it's so complex mm. um, that actually pinning a border down and, and drawing a, a line between these two countries is is really hard. Yeah. And, the, and the cultures and the biology and the, and the geography of the region mean that it is always kind of going to be unstable. And the thing that actually worries me is I think that there's this idea in both countries that this stuff can be fixed with engineering, right? Mm. That there's an engineering fix to the water problems or there's an engineering fix to even to global warming. It seems like no one's learning that we're dealing with systems that have feedback loops and anything you do is going to have a repercussion somewhere down the line. Yeah, I, I don't even think that it's it's entirely that problem that they think that there's an engineering solution to everything. It's that they think that the problem is downstream. You know, yeah. it's not our problem because our oh, water's from fine. From China's perspective? From China's perspective, even from India's perspective, once it gets over the Bangladesh border, yeah. it's their problem. There, I mean, there is a sense, this idea that nation states, are, you know, stop at the borders and yeah. water doesn't. Like water and people are two things that seem to flow across borders, even if um, people don't want them to. And in an era of nation states, this can be problematic. Yeah. But I do think that even within these borders, I mean, China and India and Bangladesh all have water problems. Mm. You know, there's a mm. water crisis in China. There's a water crisis in India. Yeah. So can we talk about uh, ecology and biodiversity? You've mm. visited and been on this river a few times and in the region and mm. you've seen how the environment is reacting. What do you see when you go there? It's a really difficult terrain that changes really fast. I have this one story that the first time I went into the Himalayas, because I grew up in Queensland near the beach and there were no hills, really. Mm-hmm. And we call them hills, but seriously. <laughs> right. And, uh, and I was going up in a bus up into the mountains and it was a cloudy day and I was having a cup of tea and this guy said, oh, look, you can see the mountains. I looked up and I like lifted my chin like about a centimetre mm. and he just looked at me like I was an idiot and put his hand under my chin and lifted it right up. And I was like, that's the mountains. They're up in the sky above the clouds. Like it was just not a geographical space that I even bodily could understand. Mm, Right. mm. You're standing in a jungle. And this is what often happens to me in these situations. I'm standing in a jungle that's like wet as staring up at an alpine desert that's like 7,000 meters snowy peaks next to alpine deserts and you're standing in a jungle and you can see it. Mm. The change is so dramatic. And every hundred meters you go up, you're going through a different ecosystem. 
it's, it's like the difference between, I don't know, outback Australia and New Zealand, but within a few kilometers. Yeah, yeah. All right, so it's so diverse and so so charged uh, the environment and some of this, and because of that situation it's it, it's so fragile as well as being so diverse. There's three of the biodiversity hot spots is what they call them places where they have more, more biodiversity on earth than most places and three of them intersect in the eastern Himalayas. Mm. All right, so there's so much variety and so much change and it's so fragile. <laughs> so I'm looking at this stunning diversity and then within that diversity you're seeing they're building all the roads but then they also build the towns that house the people who build the roads. You find things that are changing, right? But then especially in the more jungly bits, the jungle fights back, right? Someone builds a road, the next wet season the road's gone and it's mm-hmm. kind of submerged by the jungle and then they have to come in and build the road again and then then it's gone. So you get this kind of massive landslides the whole way along. It's just not a place that's meant for roads. <laughs> There's a reason that people weren't going through there a lot. And so you get this constant trying upgrading of the roads so the army and the, the dam builders can get in there and then constant degrading of it from the environment. And, and then it's just wearing away and creating more landslides and destruction for the environment around mm. there. Yeah. And that's yeah. not even starting with the dams, yeah. which in the Indian side are only half built, most of them because they keep finding like corruption problems or there's um, protests from the local different ethnic groups and, and nationalities there that don't want it there. So they get stuck. And then on the you know, China side, they just do it. And then you see these dramatic changes really fast, yeah. like really fast. Have you been on the Brahmaputra River on both sides of the border? Yes. Okay. So is there a big difference between the water on the Chinese side to the water further down in India? Can you notice Well, the environment's the so different. Yeah. All right, the bit that it descends from China to India, it drops from 4,500 metres where the river's flowing, mm. not the hills. The river is flowing at 4,500 metres. And where it comes out in India 100 kilometres down, it's at 600 metres. Yeah. So that's four kilometres down. It's just... The Chinese side is much more developed, but then it would be because it's not a jungle. <laughs> mm. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a high altitude plain. So you have a lot more roads there that are easier to build. The river is more of a braided, uh, sandy river. Mm. And then it comes down through this enormous gorge. And when it comes out the other side, it's a turbulent, you know, free-falling river um, that's got a lot more silt in it. It's interesting that there's not more coordination between the countries then or more cooperation when there's so much at stake. Because imagine if China did divert that water in the world's longest tunnel. The famine that would create... It's crazy. It's not just water. It's also mud. This is one of the most silt-laden rivers anywhere because basically the Himalayas are like a mud conveyor belt, right? So they're growing all the time and then the water strips off the mud and sends it down onto the Indian and Chinese plains and Mm -hmm. that's how they grow stuff and that's how we have India and China and half the world's population. Inundation. Inundation, yeah. And Assam in northeast India, they only started using uh, fertiliser in the last few years because they had so so many population pressures, they decided to go to two crops a year. Before that, they were just relying on the silt from this river. Mm. So it would come down and there'd be a flood pulse, right? So most of Assam would flood in the wet season, leave behind mud that was then used to grow things, right? If you'd cut that water, and there have been a couple of times where it has dried up. If it dries up, it means that that entire agricultural community of, you know, hundreds of millions of people lose their uh, access to food. Yeah. But I don't think they're going to do it because I don't think they're crazy. There's like a mega impulse to build dams in China because they have the intellectual capacity and the, and they have the religion of development in both China and India. 
I think there's things to be done. And so it's this idea of how do we keep doing it? And also building those kind of that kind of infrastructure for both China and India's perspectives embeds them in these regions which are ethnically diverse and um, haven't traditionally been the centers of the nation states mm-hmm. all right so building dams and roads up to the border means it's your land yeah, yeah so it's not even all about resources it's also about territory it's about territory and resources yeah, yeah. connection yeah. between the two wow I think Anand Singh called it frontier capitalism what a mess yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> It is a bit of a mess. And it's one of those things where like, sometimes I kind of wake up and go, oh, it's really bad. And then I think, don't, you don't have to convince anyone. It's just you here. I'm like, no, it's really bad. <laughs> it's just, if it wasn't this idea that it was a big experiment, right, if it was more contained, he wouldn't worry me so much. What I'm worried about is not so much any big project. It's, it's a death by a thousand needles approach. Yeah, yeah. The needles in this case being the dams. Perhaps. The dams or the roads yeah. and the population transfers and the extinction of one species and two species and the factory farming and whatever it is. If the impacts weren't as big, if there wasn't this idea that there was this one region in the world where all of these rivers came from that affected so many people. Thanks very much for your time today, Ruth. No worries. Thank you. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from Latrobe Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts or in SoundCloud. Please leave a review there. Reviews make us happy. You can follow Latrobe Asia on Twitter. We are at Latrobe Asia. And you can follow Ruth Gamble on Twitter. She is at water the underscore planet. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.